Welcome to Faith Is. This is the program where we stretch toward God's high calling and where we understand that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. I'm so glad you've joined us today. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. I'm the pastor of Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida, a real church with real people. A lot like the church you go to, I'm sure, because we just wrestle with the world as we find it, the same as everybody else does. We keep in mind that God is out here and in here and around here and here for us. And we press on because we have confidence in him. We have absolute confidence in his trustworthiness, and we're not going to change our mind about that. Now, this is a special weekend at our church, and so I like to do it here on the program as well. Every month, where we have five Sundays in the month, on the fifth Sunday, we call that Instant Sermon Sunday. And well, Instant Sermon Sunday doesn't mean you add water to the preacher and see what happens. Nobody's tried that yet. It means that we give ourselves the opportunity to ask about a Bible verse or ask a question about what's going on in the world around us or anything like that that's on our minds. And I take everybody's ideas and then instead of preparing a sermon, we have a conversation about those things that are on the minds of the people. And I always find it interesting. I always find it kind of challenging because no matter how much I prepare for the questions, I don't think it's ever happened that I have prepared for a question somebody asked. I don't know what that says about me. You can draw your own conclusions about that. But the important thing isn't whether or not I guess the questions. The important thing is, can God help us with the things that are really on our minds? And we find that he does. I don't pretend and nobody expects me now because they know it's impossible that I will have the answer to every question. That's not the point at all. The point is to have a conversation and the point is to try to come to grips with the things that are on our minds. It's not stump the pastor because that would be way too easy and everybody knows that. It's just the idea that can we can we have a conversation? Can we talk about the things that are important? And can we hear a different perspective from God that will guide us in the right direction? Because we want to go in the right direction and we want to go in the way God is leading us. So when we have a five Sunday month like this month, I like to bring instant sermon to the program. Now, at church, I don't see the questions ahead of time. I sometimes ask people if they've got ideas of what the questions might be. And I did that recently, and uh, the answer came back, no, nope, you'll find out when we give them to you. Well, I thought that was kind of interesting, and that's fine. I, I don't worry about that. And I have had more questions sometimes than others, and sometimes kids will submit a question, and that's fine. I'm happy for everybody to participate because it's not about whether or not I have the answer or an answer or anything close to that. The idea is that this helps us understand what we're thinking about, and it helps us think about it together and in a way that, that God can give us perspective on, because we can have that exchange of ideas. And yeah, sometimes it's more of a conversation than others, because by the nature of the setting, I do most of the talking, but it's still entirely possible for other people to have ideas and sometimes they'll come to me afterwards and say had you thought about this and usually i hadn't 
And this is the idea behind Instant Sermon. It helps us have the opportunity to think about things and for people then to talk about things on their own in their families or when they get together with a Bible study group or whatever. So on the program, it's a little hard to have those kind of questions the way we're doing it here. So what I have to do is I have to go through questions that people ask me about from time to time, things that I notice are on people's minds. And so I will bring those here and we'll talk about them. The, the advantage I have here is I choose the questions and I know about them ahead of time, but I, to try to recreate the sense of it, I don't prepare an answer. I don't write out an answer ahead of time. I just want to have a conversation with you about that because that sometimes is the most helpful way is for us to think along together with these things. And I just want to try to recreate that experience for you. And maybe, maybe your church would like to give that a try. Maybe your pastor would be willing to try that. Some people think I'm awfully brave to do that. Well, brave or foolish, I don't know. You fill it in any way you want. But we have always benefited from it. And I would encourage you to give it a try. Maybe it benefit you and your church. So, okay, let's get started. And I have a few questions chosen. And we will get to the hymn countdown that we've been doing our list, our Diplomat Wesleyan Church list of every, or of the, sorry, not every, of the top 10 hymns every Christian should know. We developed that list, and I'll talk about that in the second part of the program. But let's start here with the questions that I put together that people seem to keep asking, and let's see if we can think God's thoughts with him and with each other, and maybe we can help ourselves. It's not, I don't do this as an attempt to not have a more typical Bible lesson. We'll do that again next week, as a matter of fact. I do that as a way to help us just kind of think through things in a different way. Often that helps us and helps us connect some dots with what the Bible says. So first question that, that I think keeps coming up on people's minds, and I, and I heard this recently in a, in a way I hadn't expected to hear it for a while. Uh, it was kind of phrased in that situation as, as this is a terrible time to be having children. What a terrible time to bring children into the world. And that all fits in with the general idea that, that every now and then people will ask me, is there any hope or what's the world coming to? What about the future? And I find that's on people's minds a fair amount. And I don't know exactly why that is. It seems like it's more these days than it used to be. It may be because we're in a media-saturated environment. I'm not sure. But it is important to think about that and to have some perspective on this whole idea of what's the world coming to and what about the future. Well, the first thing that occurs to me when I think about this is that one thing nice about the future is God is there and he will meet us there. Whatever the future means and whatever it holds, God is going to be there and he's not about to abandon us. That's absolutely clear from the scriptures. That's one of the reasons that that I like to describe faith as absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. No matter how long in the, dis in the future you think or near in the future you think, whether it's a long time or a short time, God is there and he will meet all of us in the future. Now, I don't know what the future holds. I have not known that any of my life. Uh, I've always had the same sense of everybody else. We don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. But I've also heard consistently across the Christian community the reminder that we don't have to worry about that because we trust in God and God has promised not to abandon us. 
Now, we do know that ultimately what the world is coming to is redemption. The whole plan of God from the moment sin entered the world was to put in place a way to recreate that which is broken, to redeem that which has fallen, to bring life where death had entered. And so one of the things we know for sure is that ultimately what the world is coming to is a restoration according to God's plan and purpose for it. And we can be confident of that. There may be unpleasant times. I think that's why people ask about the future. What kind of unpleasantry am I going to face out there? And, and I get that. Uh, I don't know what kind of unpleasantry might be ahead of us. Maybe we won't face any of it. We in this country, the United States, have been spared many, many hardships that other people have endured. I've talked to people who had terrible difficulties during World War II, for example. We've seen the news stories of, of the hardships of people around the world. And we have largely been spared real difficulties. That's not to say some real difficulties might not come. I understand that there are no guarantees. As far as I can tell from the Bible, there is the assurance that when we trust in God, that he will, he will provide for us exactly what we need. The worrisome part for many people is they see people in our country drifting farther and farther away from God. Well, I understand that, and I'm concerned about that as well. But my confidence is not based upon what some other people do. My confidence is to stand straight and tall and to trust that God has this and he will not abandon his people. And if he causes things to come to pass or allows things to come to pass that make it difficult for us, we live with the constant assurance that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And as that psalm ends, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So that's really the, the perspective we need to keep is that the Lord is our shepherd. He is not going to abandon us. He's going to be with us all the way through whatever it is, good times and bad, we can trust him and we will. Now related to that, there's another question that sometimes comes up and people will ask about how to deal with anxiety and depression. And that conversation is really loaded with a lot of, how should I say, a, a lot of mixed understandings uh, a lot of, um, in some respects, baggage from what we mean by anxiety and depression, because we're not always real clear about what we're, what we're talking about, what we're describing. Are we talking about a clinical type depression that goes by certain characteristics that are recognized? Are we talking about somebody feeling the blues? Are we feeling anxious because we know something is about to happen and we have to be in front of people and we're going to give a speech and so it causes us a little of what we sometimes call stage fright is that anxiety or maybe it's the chronic anxiety that people deal with because there is such a thing as people who seem to live in a state of continuing anxiety and you know that concerns me because i don't see with the bible where we're created to live with that kind of chronic anxiety and, and yet people get awfully confused about how that all fits together. Well, the good news is when I was pondering these questions and thinking about what people ask about, and this whole anxiety issue is, is a continuing one, 
is I came across some really helpful information as I was preparing for next week. And and yes, this is, I guess, a shameless plug for next week's program, because I do want to talk about some of these kind of things, because there's some real guidance from the Bible. But as I was getting ready for this program and doing some other things, I, I came across an email from someone I only know from written communications, from being introduced to her work uh, through another person's work. So I really have never met the person, never talked to this person. But some of her observations that are based upon her study of the scriptures related to this whole idea of anxiety were really, really brilliant. And so I'm going to use some of that next week. So I guess what I'm trying to say here is I don't really want to talk about, even though I put it on the list, this idea of anxiety and depression too much, because I want to talk about it more next week. And I want us to have that kind of careful, biblically informed discussion that will help us. I guess if you want a short answer about this, I don't see any place in the Bible where we were created to have chronic anxiety and depression. I know that gets very complicated. I know there are all kinds of trite ways of describing things. I do not want to be trite. But I do want to say that over and over, the Bible reminds us that God wants to bring wholeness to our lives, holiness to our lives. And my understanding of wholeness does not include dealing with chronic anxiety, with chronic depression no matter how you define either one of those. If we are going to have wholeness in our lives, I think God comes to heal the broken places and to strengthen the weak places so that we can have confidence in Him. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. I hope I'm not overselling what we're going to talk about next week, but we are going to talk about that in in more detail. And I do want to help us understand that better. I'm not going to pretend that next week we'll have every answer to every question you've asked about this. But I do hope I can give some biblical perspective on that and give us some hope. My real concern is that people live in a state of this chronic anxiety or this nagging depression. And and it blocks every other sense of what's going on in life. And I don't believe that God intends us to live there. And I would like to deliver us from that and help us have perspective. Or maybe I'd like to say, I'd like to to give information that will help God deliver us from that. I'm no deliverer he is, but I want to help us think about these things better so that we can find that wholeness that the Bible talks about, because that's what the Bible says, that we're to be whole and holy. And I think that's possible, or he wouldn't say that's what he wants for us. God doesn't describe things that he wants for us that are impossible for us. He doesn't say to us, keep your calm, don't be all upset, or as we sometimes say, fear not. If he didn't mean, don't be afraid. You don't have to live in continuous fear. You can trust me. And we do, and we will, and we are. And we're going to talk about that some more next week. Now, also related to that is this question that keeps coming up, and and it's kind of a personal how should I say, a hot button for me, I guess, that I that I notice. And, and I notice how people describe things, and I always want to bring this up when I can. I don't do it every situation because it's not always appropriate, but there's often this kind of tension in people's understanding of life about is God in control or is God in charge? Now, much of the time, what I hear people expressing is this idea that God is in control. 
so that everything that has happened or is happening or will happening is happening because God controls what happens and what doesn't happen. And I can't go down that road. I, I do not understand the Bible as communicating that God is in control in the sense that he causes things to happen and doesn't cause things to happen. Now, clearly there are instances in the Bible where God intervenes and he injects himself into situations and he makes something happen, or he intervenes and he protects people from harm. He causes something to not happen. Like when the people of Israel were leaving Egypt and they got up to the Red Sea and they couldn't get across. Well, God intervened to deliver them from death at the hand of Pharaoh's army. He parted the waters and they walked across on dry land. Certainly God does intervene from time to time in purposeful ways. That being said, I come down on the side of that God is in charge, not in control. And what I mean by that is God does superintend the entire universe of his making. God is, is the supreme, the sovereign over all. But in creating the world in which we live, God allowed you and me, he allowed people to have choices, to have what we call free will. Now, many perspectives allow for something called free will. And that gets a little complicated and I'm not going to go into that any farther than to say this. My understanding of free will, as the Bible talks about it, is that people are free to make choices. They make choices for right or choices for wrong. They choose what to eat and what not to eat. They choose what color shirt to wear and what color pants that will go with it. They choose what kind of cake they want for their birthday and what kind of ice cream they want for their birthday. That's why I, when I was a kid, I could choose lemon cake with peach ice cream. And I still like that combination. Everybody thinks it's kooky, and they're right, it is. But that's an example of we have much liberty to choose the direction we go in life. Some people think that our choice is what they call free, but it's only in the sense that we are free to choose what God wants us to do. And that's what I mean when I say God is in charge, not in control. I don't see any place in the Bible where God controls us to the degree that some people think he does. In other words, he causes everything to happen. He causes everything to not happen. God is in control. We have a big part to play. That's why it's so important for us to, to know what's right and what's wrong so we can choose right and reject what's wrong. So whenever you face these situations, and there are many times that you just kind of, you come up against situations and say, how could God let that happen? Well, I understand that, particularly when it involves bad things that happen to people. I, I, I have that same frustration. I wish we lived in a world that was not broken by sin. At the same time, God has given people the responsibility and the ability to make choices. And sometimes people make bad choices that result in harmful, terrible things happening. If God was in control, he could control all of that. If he really is in control and you think that, then you have to believe God is causing that. And I can't go there. So I, that's why I say God is in charge, not in control. God is in charge. He rules and reigns over everything. 
but he gives us the ability and the responsibility to make good choices so that we will do the right thing when we face a difficult situation or even an easy situation. We will choose rightly and choose well. Now, there's another conversation that's going on across the country in lots of places. You may be aware of this. You may know about it happening right where you live. Maybe you've just read about it in other places. It's definitely happening in Florida, and I've had some personal involvement in it. So I really do think I understand what's at stake and what's at issue across the country. But the question is this, and, and good people have, have an honest reason for asking the question because they really want to know. And every now and then people will ask me about something that, that I have a little more insight in that they don't because they really want to know what's going on. So people sometimes ask, what's really going on with all this supposed book banning in our public schools? Well, let's talk about that. I've been involved with an organization for about 10 years. And for the last few years, we've been working in Florida to try to get some of this harmful material out of our schools. The organization that I helped start is called the Florida Citizens Alliance. And we have been working with parents across Florida and other organizations, sometimes with school board members, to try to get some of this offensive, harmful material out of our public schools. We object to some of these things because they are inappropriate for our children. And in some cases, not just inappropriate, they're flat out harmful. Let me give you an example of one that just popped up recently that we have had very limited success in getting that removed from our public schools. Thankfully, in my particular county, they aren't in the schools. At least that's according to a sheriff's uh, office spokesperson who reported to a friend of mine that they had checked and they weren't there. But the books at issue that we've been talking about most recently here in Florida, including yesterday, is a series of books called Assassination Classroom. Now, Assassination Classroom is a series of graphic novels, and they're all about school kids, children, young men and women, taking high-powered weapons to school and shooting and killing their teacher. Now, when we found out about that, we thought that was an obvious mistake an obvious solution would be to pull them out of the schools because we don't want to teach our children either intentionally or by accidental exposure that it's a good thing to shoot their teachers. Why do we want that sort of thing in the schools, particularly in light of all of the dreadful incidents we've had around our country, including we've had a terrible one in Florida a couple years ago. Well, we brought this to the attention of school districts across the state there has been some success in school districts saying, you're right, this isn't appropriate, we don't want it there. There have been other school districts that have refused to do it. They're going to take a look at it and consider it and think about it. Well, all of this is, is an attempt to protect our children from harmful things. This is not about book banning. People attack the idea of protecting children by accusing good-hearted parents many of you maybe, of trying to ban books. Well, banning books has a terrible history in a free society, and I don't know of a single person that is interested in banning books. We understand the, the whole business of free speech. We understand, understand the risks of it, and we accept those. 
And we're not, when we talk about our school libraries, our school classrooms, we're not talking about banning books. We're talking about protecting children. And this is what people seem to miss in this conversation. Those people who want to defend literature of all kinds, no matter how offensive it might be, they always pick up this idea of they want to ban books. Well, let's think about that in a couple of ways. One, is it banning a book when there are thousands and thousands of books that are printed every year that our school libraries don't purchase? Well, they can't purchase every book. So are we effectively banning the books that we don't purchase? Nobody says that. But that's a fair question, isn't it? If we're not buying certain books, does that mean we're banning them? Should we buy out of responsibility every book that's published so our school libraries are full of whatever book is out there so we're not ever banning books? Someone is obviously choosing which ones to allow in, which ones to say no to. And sometimes they've purchased and sometimes they're donated. But either way, somebody is deciding whether this is in or out. Is that person who's deciding banning books because they can't accept everyone? They wouldn't have this shelf space for everyone. So I think we need to kind of expose this whole idea of book banning for what it is on that level. But there's a more, to me, personal and important basis upon which we need to evaluate these books. And that's the realization that our media centers in our schools, our libraries, the collections of books our teachers have in the classrooms, those are for a specific purpose. Those are for the education of our children. And in Florida, children are young men and women, 17 years old and younger. And so they are not, they have not yet reached the age of majority. And so we have a special responsibility because we protect them because of their age and inexperience. And it's rightfully so. I have been arguing and trying to get people to realize that our school media centers, our school libraries are specialized collections. They are specialized libraries there to serve children, to help them learn to read and to write, to do arithmetic, to learn civics, all of the things that make up a solid foundation in in for an educated student. Well, in the same way that those are specialized libraries, we have other specialized libraries, and I don't hear people accusing a medical library of banning books because you and I know that medical libraries serve a specific purpose. They serve medical professionals. So they're not going to go out and acquire every book that's out there because they want to acquire the books, the resources that will support those medical professionals. In the same way, there are many legal libraries around, and those libraries are designed to support legal professionals. So they find the materials that they believe would be most helpful for a lawyer or a paralegal or someone else that's working in the legal environment to have access to so they can do their jobs and do them well. There are specialized libraries to serve the legal profession. When it comes to theology, there are theological libraries. They serve 
to help people study theology and all of the many perspectives and writings that have been given to us so we can understand God and the Bible better. It's a special library. Nobody accuses a theological library of banning books because they don't buy medical materials or don't buy legal library materials. No, they understand it's a specialized purpose. In the same way, nobody would accuse a medical library of banning books if they don't buy books that support the legal profession. They know that they're for lawyers and the doctors don't need those. Nurses don't need those. Our lab techs don't need those. They need things that support medical functions. In the same way, our school libraries are for children and they need to support children and their learning. And we don't need to have an obligation to buy everything under the sun, no matter what idea it supports for our children. Our children need to be protected from harmful things so that their innocence is preserved and so they learn things in an age-appropriate way. And we're losing sight of that when we try to frame this argument as banning books instead of understanding that really these are our children and we have a responsibility to have school libraries, school media centers that are absolutely pristine from harmful materials and things that children do not need to be exposed to. They need to read the best of books for kids. They need to read the best of history and all of those things. They don't need to have their minds cluttered with things that are beyond their age or that are inappropriate for schools to introduce to them. And I can tell you because I've seen them myself, there are many, many books in our Florida schools that simply shouldn't be there. And we have tried and tried, and we're going to keep trying to get people to wake up and to realize that our children don't need to be exposed to these. When parents find out about it, they're horrified. But the decision makers seem to have a real difficulty wrapping their head around that we need to protect our children and we need to do the right thing by them. And we don't need to be buying everything that's out there. We need to buy what's good for our kids to help them learn to read and to write, to grow up to be good citizens. That makes a lot of sense to most of us. I'm not quite sure why it doesn't get through to other people unless, unless they have an agenda that's not about banning books, but it's about indoctrinating children and exposing them to things that will separate them from their parents, from their faith, from good judgment. And that is a whole another conversation and I suspect that is their agenda. Well, this is Faith Is, and we are stretching each other in God's direction. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and we're going to take some more instant sermon questions when we get back in just a minute. Whether you're an independent, a Democrat, or a Republican, one thing remains true. Airborne viruses love us equally. You've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the advanced nasal solution, Cofix RX. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. Did you know that doctors and nurses have been swabbing their noses with povidone iodine to protect from airborne threats like colds, flus, and pandemic era strains for decades? Cofix RX took that idea and made a more complete nasal formula with lasting cleansing effects. Maybe you're traveling soon or going to an event. Are you concerned somebody nearby might be sick? Maybe the office or classroom stresses you out. Get yourself a bottle of Cofix RX nasal solution. Spray goodbye to colds and flus with a Cofix RX nasal solution cleanse. That's C-O-F-I-X-R-X.com. Save 20% by using promo code 
out loud at cofixrx.com. Trouble concentrating or recalling information is frustrating, embarrassing, and kills productivity. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created Focus and Recall to boost your brain power. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Focus and Recall is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients to help you immediately sharpen focus, concentrate longer, and strengthen recall. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. You've heard Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company discuss the harmful effects of spike protein in your body. And now they found the solution. The miracle enzyme natokinase. Their spike support formula contains natokinase, the most compelling and scientifically supported approach to safely clear spike protein out of the body. What's more, spike support is optimized with other all-natural, non-GMO ingredients, like dandelion root, to help prevent spike protein from binding to your cells. Everyone should take daily spike support so you can feel your best. America Out Loud listeners can go to outloudcare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. was Henry Wadsworth Longfellow that said, lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime and departing, leave behind us footprints on the sands of time. America Out Loud Talk Radio, the liberty and justice for all. Welcome back. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and you're listening to Faith Is. This is the program where we stretch toward God's high calling, where we understand that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God because we can trust Him, and we want to, and we want to challenge each other to trust Him. I'm the pastor of Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida. We're a church like yours, maybe. Uh, If yours is faithful to the Bible and faithful to what God calls us to do, that's what we're about, and we hope you are too. Well, our church earlier this year did a little exercise that I kind of got this idea from another guy and thought, well, why couldn't we do that as a church? He did it personally. He identified the hymns every Christian should know, and I thought, well, why can't we as a church do the same thing and identify the hymns every Christian should know? Now, I knew we couldn't identify every hymn out there, so I knew we would have to narrow the list. And so we kind of put in place a process where we nominated a bunch of hymns, some 144, really more, depending on how you want to count it, but at least 144 that our congregation nominated. And so then we kind of had to narrow the list, and that was a little bit of a process. took a little longer than I expected because so many people participated and were so careful about it. But we didn't want to choose the hymns that were our favorites. We all have favorites. You have favorites. I have favorites. That's good. We're not discouraging that. or, And i got nothing against that. But we wanted to choose hymns that every Christian should know. That's a little different than my personal favorite because, you know, my favorite will mean something to me based upon my 
walk with God, my understanding of, of what it means to be faithful to him. And yours might be a favorite because of some important event in your life where a particular hymn just was there and had such rich meaning for you at the time. So we didn't want our favorites or things like that. We wanted hymns every Christian should know. And so we came up with a list of 10 and five honorable mention. We may get into the honorable mention hymns later. I haven't really thought about that too much. But let me give you the rundown. We are at hymn number two on our list this week. So let's count it down from 10. Number 10, and this may surprise some people. Number 10 is Jesus loves me. You know, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's number 10. Number nine, Christ the Lord is risen today. A great hymn. We usually think about it at Easter time, but it's appropriate anytime because resurrection never ends. Oh, and have I said that yet today? I don't think so. But remember, resurrection never ends. So number nine, Christ the Lord is risen today. Number eight, holy, holy, holy. You remember, may know that hymn, and it talks about the holiness of God, Lord God Almighty. It's a great hymn and a great tune, and it came out as number eight. Now, one of the things that, that I like to remind everybody, and let's remind ourselves today, is that a hymn text is only a hymn text, but a hymn tune is only a hymn tune in the same sense. But you, when you put them together, a hymn text and a hymn tune, then you have something special. And that's what we're looking at. A hymn is really uh, not a hymn unless it's sung, unless it has that music and that lyric combined. So that's number eight, holy, holy, holy. And it's a great one. Number seven, what a friend we have in Jesus. A lot of people know that one. It's very well loved. Maybe a lot of people's favorites, but this is one we thought people should understand because Jesus is our friend. Number six, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Now, a mighty fortress is our God. There's strength in that idea, and we need to remind ourselves. We talked earlier today about what's going to happen in the future. Well, what's going to happen in the future is we have a mighty fortress in our God, and he can be trusted. Number five, because he lives. This is one that's become popular in my lifetime. Came out of Indiana, Bill and Gloria Gaither. We talked about the origin of that, but it really has a powerful statement. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. And, and we talked about that question, what about the future? Well, what about the future? Well, Jesus lives there, and he lives here, and he lives forever. And because he lives, I can face the future. All fear is gone. We have confidence in God. That's number five, because he lives. Number four, the old rugged cross. Uh, this is a perennial favorite by a lot of people. I wasn't sure it would make the list, but it really didn't matter what I thought. It mattered what people believed were the hymns every Christian should know, and they came up with the old rugged cross. The cross is a central figure for a lot of reasons in our understanding of Christian faith. And so it was number four, a little higher on the list than we might have expected, but there it is. Number three, great is thy faithfulness. That's the one we talked about last week. It reminds us that God is faithful over and over in the scriptures. God longs to be faithful and to bless his people if only they will love him. It's really quite remarkable. And this great hymn and tune sung together expresses so much of the powerful truth that 
God is faithful to his people. And so now we're up to number two on our countdown. And I don't know if you can guess what it is, but I'm pretty sure a lot of you could guess it's one of two. And you're probably thinking, if it's this one, then number one is the other one and so forth. And you'd probably be right. But number two on our list is How Great Thou Art. This hymn has been well popularized, well loved across many, many people for many, many years. It actually came to us from a Swedish composer. It was first written in Swedish, it was later translated by a man named Stuart Hine, and that's the text that we are most familiar with. But it's really quite remarkable that it now transcends, or so it seems to me, transcends so much of language and of understanding. And the text is just, is just well, remarkable. Let me just go over the text. I'm not going to sing it for you, but you, you can probably hear it sung in the background. O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the works thy hands hath made. I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. And just a note, that talks about the wondrous works of creation, and it was written, started when the Swedish composer, or not composer, writer, was considering this text and then wrote it down. He was in awe of creation. Well, it has a refrain, Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, How great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, How great thou art, how great thou art. And that refrain is generally sung after every stanza. I'm not going to read it after every stanza today, but you understand how that works. Stanza two, When through the woods and forest glades I wander, and hear the birds sing sweetly in the trees. When I look down from lofty mountain grandeur and hear the brook and feel the gentle breeze. And then the refrain. Stanza three. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. And finally, stanza four. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart? Then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, my God, how great thou art. And then it's always finished with a grand final singing of that stanza, that refrain of that stanza. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. And so we have the hymn passed down to us, but make sure you realize that that hymn was popularized in our country beginning in, well, not really in our country, in Toronto, actually, in 1955, in this continent in North America. You may have heard of a guy named Billy Graham who started Crusades, well, he had a man who would sing for his crusades named George Beverly Shea. You may or may not be familiar with all of those. But frequently at a Billy Graham crusade, he would hold these huge services in stadiums that he would have guest singers, but almost always George Beverly Shea, a soloist, would sing 
a song, and frequently it was How Great Thou Art. And he began singing that particular song at the Toronto Crusade in 1955. Interestingly enough, I visited and actually attended the church for one service where George Beverly Shea's family served in Winchester, Ontario, Canada, when I lived up there. And so there's a real interesting connection between Canadians and Americans through this great hymn. And it started in the mid-1950s, so you can do the math. A lot of us have seen that hymn come to prominence in our lifetimes. And it's one of those hymns that for many of us, we can't remember learning it. It seems like it's been there forever, and we have always known it. Well, there was a time when we learned it, of course, but isn't it remarkable how God has used something like that to bless so many people? And it came about in our lifetimes from the middle 50s, starting in Toronto in 1955. How great thou art. And God is just as great today as he was when that hymn first gained popularity. Well, let's move on now back to our questions that we have been pondering. And I have a few more. I don't know if we'll get to all of them, but we'll get to several of them. And I want us to think about a concept that people are asking these days, and they don't always ask it as forthrightly as as the, the person who, who gave me this question did. But they, they were a little concerned because they were reading in, in the Psalms about how David would pray against his enemies. And you can go look and you can see that David, uh, he wasn't always <laughs> praying that his enemies would be blessed. He, he prayed right at them, uh, right against them, as this question writer put it. And so they, the natural question for them was, uh, from a political standpoint, my thought is there comes a time for praying God's judgment against those ruining this nation. Well, that's, a, that's an interesting question, isn't it? How do we pray? That's really the question. Now, now we know that, that the Bible talks about that we pray for our enemies. We love our enemies. We understand that concept. We understand that Jesus told us the whole law, the whole set of commandments is summed up in love God and love your neighbor. So we understand that. And yet here's David in so many of the different places in the book of Psalms praying against his enemies. And so this person is saying, well, when do I pray for my enemy? And when do I pray against my enemy that God would judge them? Well, a couple of thoughts on that. One, we certainly know because it came from the from the instruction of Jesus that we are to love our neighbors. Love God, love your neighbor. Okay, so some neighbors are easier to love than others. I get that. And sometimes we see things going on in public life that we don't support. And so do we, how do we, or do we even pray for those people? Well, keep in mind that one of the things Jesus said was to love them, so certainly a prayer for them should be that God would reveal to them his truth that they can walk in the way of righteousness. And there's absolutely no reason we shouldn't pray that way. You see, we can pray that God would bless them with the truth, his truth, that they would not be blinded to what's right and what's wrong. We can pray that God would reveal that to them and that even once they see it, they would have the courage to do the right thing. 
Because I can tell you, when you get around some of this stuff, the seduction of power is strong. And some people, even when they know the right thing, won't do it because they will not risk losing their power. So it's appropriate to pray that way for our enemies. It's also appropriate to pray that God would bring people in their lives to help them see that, that God would really make a, a huge difference in, in all of the people around them so that their advisors would come to see that which is true and right and holy. All of that is appropriate. But then you say, well, but I don't want them to succeed because they're doing all of the wrong things. Well, if they are against what God is doing, isn't it appropriate to pray that God would would confuse their efforts, that God would block what they're trying to accomplish and keep it from taking place, that God would deliver us from evil that's going on in our world? It doesn't mean you have to pray condemnation on the person. It doesn't mean you have to pray that God would get them, so to speak. But it is appropriate to pray that God's kingdom would come and his will would be done in their life and in their decision making. Why wouldn't we pray for that? That could change a lot. If a person who's doing the wrong thing, and as this question writer says, ruining the nation, then wouldn't it be good if God would redeem them so they could do what's right in the nation? So praying for people requires wisdom to pray rightly. We don't pray that their bad things would come to pass. That's just foolish. We pray that God would open their eyes to help them see right from wrong and then give them the strength of character to do what's right. The courage of righteous convictions, I've sometimes said. And it's appropriate to pray that God would not let come to pass the evil that they are doing. And we should pray that God would deliver us from evil of all kinds. And that seems appropriate. And in line with God's admonition to love him and to love our neighbors. Now, there's another really interesting question that, that comes up from time to time, not always in the way that, um, that this question writer phrases it, but there is an interesting verse in James, the, the book of James, chapter 2, and it's in verse 12, where it says, Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. To be judged by the law of freedom. Or one English translation I know says, by the law that gives freedom. Well, you might say, well, what, what law gives freedom? Because by nature, law is restrictive. It tells you what you must not do. So it's not freedom, it's restriction. So what could the writer mean when he says to be judged by the law that gives freedom? Well, let's think about that a little bit. One of the things that God's people always rejoiced about was that they had the law of God. God had given them the law, and they were so blessed to have God's law. Now, when you first read that and you think about it, you think, well, how can we be blessed to be restricted? How is it a blessing to, to have a law that we have to follow? We can't just do what we want to do. Well, in ancient times, all of the other people followed other gods. They did not follow the one true God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They did not follow their God. So they were driven to do all kinds of things to appease their God so that their God would not crush them, 
send a famine, an enemy, whatever. And so they lived, in a sense, in a state of fear that they would offend their God and their God would lash out at them. Now, I don't know that they lived day by day in fear. I'm not suggesting that. I'm, I'm trying to draw a contrast between Israel and them. Israel, on the other hand, they knew exactly what God expected of them. We often refer to the Ten Commandments, and we say, well, God gave them Ten Commandments so they would know what to do. And, and yeah, that's right. They had those. But on a bigger sense, they had a confidence that God was consistent in his expectations, and all they needed to do was to do what God told them to do, and they would not be subject to the wrath of a rogue God of some kind. And so that gives a level of freedom that isn't true for people who are always wondering whether they need to appease their God in another more sincere manner. So they had freedom, God's people had, and we have now freedom to live our lives confident that we know what God expects. And God expects what? Love him and love our neighbors. We can evaluate everything based upon that law of love, and that gives a level of freedom. And we should be rejoicing in that and recognizing that's what the Bible talks about when it talks about the law that gives freedom. Now, I have not studied this particular verse extensively. I told you I would do instant sermon like I do it in church and just give you thoughts and kind of let, let us think together. So it's entirely possible there's a little more to this based upon the setting of the times. But in a big sense, it's a huge liberation when you know that God has told you clearly what to do and what not to do. There is great freedom in that because now you know how to live your life free of fear, free of the concern that you will offend God and that he will then crush you in some way. That one sense is what it means, the law that gives freedom. Well, people ask a lot of interesting questions, and this other one I think is very important for us as well. And it is a question that I've asked and I had to kind of come to grips with too, because, well, it, it just doesn't seem right when you read it and when you think about it. So the questioner writes, why, when Jesus was on the cross, did he say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did Jesus say that? I guess related to that is we should ask, did God forsake him? Well, let's think about that. Jesus assured us that God would never leave us or forsake us. Over and over, we have this confidence assurance in the scriptures that we can trust in God and we can have confidence in him. And Jesus, by his example, his willingness to go to the cross, demonstrated that he had confidence in God too, that he trusted God. It's kind of an unusual concept to think about, not once you begin to think about it, but at first to, to wrap your mind around the faith of Jesus, or you might say the faithfulness of Jesus. He had confidence in God because he did what God asked him to do. And so what's going on when Jesus says on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, apparently, because he asked that question, God had forsaken him. That's a pretty big deal to think that God had forsaken 
his one son, part of the Trinity. What's going on? Well, the Bible also tells us that Jesus became sin for us. All of the sin of the world was laid on Jesus. So, in the act of carrying the sin of the world and paying the penalty for sin by dying, Jesus was then forsaken by God because God turned away in that moment when Jesus was taking upon himself the sin of the world and paying the penalty. And God could not intervene lest the penalty not be paid. So I think it's a fascinating thing to, to, to consider that God had to turn away from the Savior of the world that he sent to save the world. But he had to turn away because Jesus was saving the world by becoming sin for us. We're going to be back next week. We're going to talk about that anxiety, depression stuff, and a whole lot more on Faith Is. I'm Pastor Rick Stevenson.